Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. The perennial question on the minds of many of us in the Jewish community, of course, is, is it good for the Jews? And with respect to American democracy and the political environment, the answer has generally been yes throughout history. Except today, I think a lot of us have been giving some second thoughts to that whole issue in the wake of the rise of anti-Semitic incidents around the country. As I speak, there's a trial going on in Pennsylvania of the alleged perpetrator of the massacre of 11 people at a synagogue in 2018. And these troubling trends have gotten a lot of American Jews in a mood to reassess our position in American society. The White House itself has mobilized against anti-Semitism in a rather, I think, unprecedented way. We're going to talk about that with our guest in a moment. Josh Kraushar, who is one of America's sharpest political analysts and the newly installed editor-in-chief of a really interesting publication called Jewish Insider. And in addition to that, of course, he is a columnist who does a political tip sheet for Axios. He's a commentator on Fox News Radio. And for my money, one of the smartest political pundits in the business. So Josh, welcome to the podcast. Chuck, it's, it's great to be back with you on the podcast for the first time. <laughs> we talked so much off air, but this is great to do this on radio, if you will. So Josh, let's jump in right away with the White House anti-Semitism strategy, which publicly the feedback on it has been really strong, favorable from a lot of Jewish organizations. Tell us a little bit about what this document says and why the Biden administration thought it was so important to bring it out. So Chuck, the big picture is that everyone has seen the data that anti-Semitism is on the rise. There's been disturbing anecdotes and incidents of violence, of assaults. The level of those types of incidents is at decades long highs, according to numerous studies and analyses. And to their credit, the White House has really spotlighted anti-Semitism as a necessary focus for the government. And uh, they announced uh, months ago that they would be undertaking what they call a whole of government plan to deal with tackling the growing problem of, of anti-Semitism. Now, we've been reporting on all the details in the report that the White House put out last week. They admirably tackled all areas of American life from what's going on on college campuses to what's happening in the streets of some of our biggest cities in, in the country. And, and, you know, reaction from the what I would call the institutional Jewish world has been largely positive publicly, certainly. But we also reported some interesting divisions, both within the White House and within the Jewish community privately, about some of the fundamental issues at play in, in putting out this report. So let's talk about those divisions, Josh, because as we've talked about, this had to do with something you would think would be fairly straightforward, which is how to define anti-Semitism. And yet what you guys have reported is that that was a source of a lot of disputation and conflict. Even. It's, it's the variation of the Bill Clinton quote, the, what's the meaning of is, right? You know, I think most Jews would say that you can tell anti-Semitism, you can just see it or hear it, and it's pretty obvious um, what anti-Semitism is. But when it comes 
to formulating a definition, there was actually a surprising amount of debate within this administration. And um, just for a little bit of context, Chuck, and this can get into the weeds a little bit if you're not well-versed in some of these subjects. And even I was sort of learning on the job in terms of the different definitions and the debates over uh, defining anti-Semitism. But, you know, writ large, most, if not all, mainstream Jewish groups, most states in the United States of America, most international governments in the West embrace what's called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. It's a pretty, pretty straightforward mainstream accounting. Uh, And most significantly, and this is where the debate and where the political uh, discussion and division comes in, it defines certain types of very rabid anti-Israel rhetoric as anti-Semitism. Now, when it it comes to looking at the Democratic coalition, and in particular, the left, the left wing of the Democratic Party, there's... (laughs) A real frustration that they view that the notion of, you know, certain types of anti-Israel rhetoric as being okay. It doesn't have to be anti-Semitic. And there's been a lot of efforts from various groups, some I would call just blatantly anti-Israel groups, and some that are sort of eh, kind of in the mushy progressive left uh, side of the party, but probably a little more down the middle when it comes to Israel. But they've been trying to kind of claw back areas of anti-Israel rhetoric or commentary that they want to say is actually kosher. It's actually okay to say these things. So they, they, you know, you have this huge debate internally on semantics, but it was really over a fundamental conversation, which is you're seeing a, a growing number of just hateful, extreme rhetoric from all sides, it's increasingly from the far left, when it comes to describing Israel as sort of a Nazi state or holding Israel to standards that no one would ever hold France or other Western democracies to. And I think, you know, most Jewish groups in, in, in modern, uh, at least in the modern era, have considered that type of rhetoric or the, that type of commentary anti-Semitic. But you see an increasing element of the left who have been trying to carve that out from the anti-Semitic space. And there was this very heated uh, debate over how to exactly define anti-Semitism and whether the mainstream definition, as embraced by every main, every main you know, established sort of centrist traditional Jewish organization, would be fought or would be embraced. So how did this ultimately play out in terms of the text that the White House reduced? Well, they sort of tried to have their cake and eat it too, uh, though I think most Jewish groups we quoted and, and talked to ultimately were very satisfied with the outcome. And they basically cited the IHRA definition and said it had been embraced by essentially the government, but they also cited favorably another definition that was backed by more progressive groups called the Nexus definition. And and they also sort of embraced that definition as well in the report. So ultimately, at least publicly, everyone on the the sort of institutional Jewish center was satisfied, but it did obscure this larger debate and a debate that's not going to be going away anytime soon over the, the larger issues in the Jewish community. So as is so often the case, Josh, what is apparently an argument about words is really an argument about ideas. And the ideas at stake here, as I understand it, are the following. Israel should not be immune from good faith criticism of what it does. I think that's even included in the mainstream definition of anti-Semitism to which you alluded. But, but then that creates the other problem of what constitutes good faith criticism. And there are people who believe that certain kinds of good faith criticism are being shut down by being labeled anti-Semitic. I take it that's the reason for this pushback. 
you know, query why that would be a main concern in the course of organizing a program to, to sort of get at a problem of growing anti-Semitism as its top priority. But I mean, I do think what this is getting at is the reality, which is the affinity for Israel in the U.S. body politic generally, and perhaps within the ranks of the Democratic Party in particular, is waning, is under question as it previously had never been. That's right, Chuck. And I think that word affinity is, is a really appropriate one because, you know, as, as a political analyst, you can see that there are progressive elements of the party and younger elements of the Democratic Party that don't have, that they may not have the same, what are the, the, the Kishkes, they don't pass the Kishkes test when it comes to Israel. Right? They don't <laughs> have the same, you know, passion, empathy. I actually think a lot of that is overstated. I think some of the data that, that's come out shows that liberal progressive democrats view israelis and palestinians with equal amounts of empathy or compassion but actually the support for israel itself is fairly stable it's not there's not a huge drop off but i do think there is something to that element of the party showing some decline uh, in its support for israel and i think the challenge and i talked to a very um plugged in democratic lawmaker weeks ago this person put it very very smartly i thought he sort of said that the support for israel writ large hasn't dropped off considerably. You could, you could name dozens upon dozens of rank and file Democratic lawmakers that vote with Israel, vote to give foreign aid to Israel, vote to fund all the defense and national security elements to keep Israel safe. But, you know, if you really pointed on the Democratic side of the aisle to the number of lawmakers who really passed that Kishkas test, who really care with all their, you know, blood, sweat and tears, what happens to Israel, they used to be like, you know, 30, 40 members at least uh, 10, 20 years ago in the Democratic Party. And now maybe you can count that list on, on, on one or two hands. Um, you know, the real fighters that will uh, go to the mat when, when there is a division with it between party and principles. And that's something I think hearing that from someone on the front lines shows how much that element of the relationship between the Democratic Party and Israel has changed in recent years. Well, the flip side of that is that Israel has become a more partisan issue, period that the Republican Party has put itself forward, particularly in the Trump era, sort of a, an unconditional backer of Israel, no matter what it does. And, you know, I think a lot of this uh, angst between the parties over this goes back to the conflict between Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, and Barack Obama when he was president. Talk a little bit about how you see partisanship developing around support for Israel in, in a new way. That is such an important point, Chuck. And look, it's almost a chicken or egg argument. Like, did our growing polarization and partisanship fuel sort of the partisanship around the Israel issue, which, you know, Israel was once one of the few issues in our politics, Chuck, that was remarkably bipartisan, no matter what was happening externally. And that's changed uh, somewhat to this day. But I think you can also point to what happened around what 20 was it 2013, 2014, when, you know, the Obama administration undertook, a, I would consider a pretty a radical shift in foreign policy in trying to come up with some kind of, you know, detente nuclear diplomacy with Iran to normalize the country in a, in a sense, remove sanctions. That, that was, you know, it was a big political issue to be sure for Israel, for Bibi Netanyahu and the entire Israeli national security establishment. It was also an existential one. This was not a political game. This was something where you saw a divide between the American government and the Israeli prime minister in a way we haven't in, in quite some time. And look, Bibi Netanyahu decided as part of his pushback against the, the looming uh, 
U.S.-led nuclear uh, deal with Iran was to come to Congress and work with John Boehner and and give a speech that was extremely uh, polarizing, which which really irritated some Democrats, including those who were generally on the pro-Israel side of the party. Now, look, you can see it both ways, right? I mean, you could argue that that was not a good political move for Bibi to, to make this a partisan issue, to, to kind of pour salt in the wound of, of our partisan divisions. But you could also see it from the Netanyahu perspective and the Israeli perspective, where this is, you, you have political capital to spend it, whether it's foreign policy. To, like, this is one of those moments where, you know, Netanyahu, and, and if you read his view of history, he views, you know, hinge moments where you, need to speak truth to power. And, you know, I've read several of his books. Like he, he has a sense of, hey, this is, this is his moment. And this is, he, he has the opportunity where other Jews throughout world history didn't have that moment. And he thought that going and speaking to Congress and really mobilizing opposition to that deal was one of those moments. And look, you can, you can argue it both ways, but clearly it, it, it put the relationship between the Democratic Party and Israel and the larger Middle East on a track that it hadn't been on for quite some time. And I think it cooled the, the warmth of that relationship in the long term. Well, fast forward to today, and I don't want to make this a, a piece about the internal situation in Israel, but I want to talk about the, this extraordinary crisis that Israel's been going through and how it has kind of reverberated in the U.S. And I think the spectacle of so many Israeli Jews going into the street denouncing their own prime minister and his cabinet in very fervent, unequivocal terms as anti-democratic. I'm talking about the protests over the still unresolved attempt at overhauling the judiciary over there. I mean, I think that created a real permission structure in the U.S. for critics of Israel, right? I mean, that was a whole bandwidth of criticism of Israel that you really couldn't say was about being anti-Semitic because it was being voiced by Jews in Israel themselves. Well, and I think the appointment of several or two, at least, uh, sort of hard right nativist, if put, to put it generously, uh, members of that right wing coalition that Netanyahu leads, that is actually, I think, even a bigger factor in, in sort of creating a wedge between uh, the larger American Jewish community and, and some aspects of the Israeli government. And, and it is you know, definitely a, a volatile time. One parallel between, you know, our, our, our recent politics and Israel's politics is the, the need for like elected democracies to almost push, they think they have a mandate and try to push beyond the public remit. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago where we had this big debate in our country about whether it was wise for Democrats when they had full control of government to pursue this uh, re repeal of the filibuster to, to lower the threshold in which it would take to, to get major legislation passed through Congress from, from 60 to 50 in the Senate. Um, and that, you know, democracy worked, right? I mean, there was a lot of protest, certainly among Republicans, but also among moderates like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, and ultimately democracy prevailed. I mean, Israel's actually kind of, you know, the, I, I mean, we didn't have the protests, I guess, in this country over the filibuster, but this is also sort of a fundamental debate over, you know, democracy and, and different than the U.S. There's not as many checks and balances uh, in the Israeli system. We could go into that for a, a totally separate podcast. But um, look, the protests in the streets represented a, a wide swath of the opposition. It wasn't just left wing activists. It was, you know, moderates. It was uh, there was some not an overwhelming number, but some religious elements as well. So there was certainly a broad coalition against the Netanyahu judicial reforms. And look, it was an, another matter where he could have argued that it did have a mandate, but ultimately they were seeking something that did not have public support. 
uh, and and they overread their mandate, the, the newly elected government. And ultimately, you know, if you talk to Israeli political analysts, and I defer to them, I follow the American political scene very closely. I, I kind of know enough just to be dangerous on, on Israel politics, but it does seem like the public backlash has worked and it, it's much less likely that any kind of ambitious judicial changes overhaul is going to happen uh, under this government. Well, one, one takeaway I have from it is the parallel between the cleavage, the political cleavage in Israel, which is between a kind of you know, a uh, populist working class based Likud block, so to speak, and the sort of Ashkenazi elite, the sort of college, we'd call them the college educated suburbanites here. And that that's why I think this has been such an interesting phenomenon, because there's almost like this transnational connection between American college educated suburbanites, many of them Jews, and the people in the streets uh, of Israel, they seem to have almost more in common with, with each other than with other people in their own societies. But I'll let that thought just hang out there while we shift to, you know, American politics, because I can't talk to you on a podcast, Josh, without tapping your brilliance on that theme. So here we are in the run-up to 2024. And the theme of this podcast is the uh, hopes of rebuilding the political center. If you were looking at this from 30,000 feet, does the political center appear to you to be gaining traction in this campaign so far or losing it? Well, certainly in, the, in this campaign, in the presidential campaign of 2024, um, the center is not holding. I think it's most clear on the Republican side of the aisle where Donald Trump has reasserted his power over the party where, you know, the the sense that there would be any return to normalcy, if you, if, for lack of a better phrase, looking far uh, less likely than it was, you know, early in the year. You know, look, I, I actually think, let me, let me throw sort of a, a, an against the grain uh, perspective when it comes to extremism, extremism in politics. A lot of the problems we're facing um, and, and within both parties is that our process is broken as much as our politics. In other words, you know, we have this kind of unique political system where we nominate our candidates through these uh, primaries with we're registered voters from Republican, the Republican Party and the Democratic participate, choo choose their nominees, and then the winners go head to head in November. And that was always sort of a small D Democratic grassroots element that made American politics unique. And it worked pretty well for a long time. But what's happened in recent years is that sort of the parties have been overtaken by hardcore activists that are uh, on the extremes of, of, of their respective parties. And the, the voters that, that are most engaged, you know, on the Republican side, it used to be kind of uh, civic-minded grandmothers licking envelopes and getting out the vote in, in November. Now we see kind of alt-right uh, activists and, and extremists that are playing a disproportionate role in uh, the Republican primary. You know, on the Democratic side, you know, the moderates were once dominant, uh, the establishment really had control of the party. And now you see some of these fringe groups that play in, a, you know, look, talk about the Israel issue, for instance, you see that coming up in, in some of these races at a time when voters that, that they're much more to the center and then they don't they don't embrace these sort of uh, niche issues that socially progressive activists are sort of forcing on the agenda for, for the Democratic Party. We've seen examples in some states where, you know, just tweaking the primary system changing the rules or tweaking the rules of the game as they did in Alaska this past year actually delivers dramatically different results. Lisa Murkowski was reelected, you know, comfortably in Alaska. 
Sarah Palin lost badly uh, because her extremism didn't sell just by tweaking elements of, of the system. But, you know, like that is not, it's not that, that those kinds of reforms are also a hard sell in our in our partisan times. But look, I also think just where we are now as a country, we do know that the voters that decide elections, close elections, the 10 percent are usually very much in the middle politically, both tonally and ideologically. And oftentimes the candidate that's, that's less extreme and that's closer to the political middle tends to win the vast majority of those up for grabs voters. So even though our primaries and our, and our nominating processes have gone off the rails, you know, you can look at the midterm elections, Chuck, from 2022, and in almost every race, you see the more normal, more mainstream candidate winning these swing state and swing district races. Yes. And, and, and yet what's remarkable about what's happened since then is that the Republicans have still not learned from that, right? And seem to be continuing to gravitate toward their most extreme messengers. And that's, that's where we are right now, which is there is something of a corrective in, in general elections where you actually just look at the, the last decade. And, and, and frankly, the general elections have generally, not always, but generally produced the more, more moderate candidates. But the problem has been in the primaries and, and to a related degree, the problem has been in some of these safe, safe seats, these, these deep red, deep blue house seats, these solidly red, solidly blue state uh, Senate races, um, where, where the primary is all that matters. But I'm an optimist. I'm a glass half full kind of uh, analyst. I think there's some actual encouraging signs about the state of our electorate, that there is sort of a silent majority for normalcy out there. But we create an incentive structure right now now more than ever in our system that actually rewards the intemperate, intemperate, extreme behavior that, that is so, so commonplace right now. Well, you know, it, it, the extreme behavior is a really interesting way to put it, because one of the many sort of puzzling things about the rise of Donald Trump is that in terms of sort of conventional ideology, in some ways, you move the Republican Party to the center, right? Abandoning the whole, you know, idea of entitlement reform and, and so on. But it was the conduct and the sort of conspiratorial view of the way America worked and everything else that we're all so familiar with that was extreme about him. And one thing I wonder is wh which of those two things do you think was more decisive in his rise? Or do you think they are sort of like they go together? This sort of weird combination of somewhat more moderate political program and utterly off the charts extreme behavior. Uh, that's a that's a great question. I think you have to take the two separately because the secret sauce to Trump's success in 2016 was that he was actually viewed by a whole lot of Republican voters as the more moderate candidate. And uh, it's hard to code some issues like foreign policy engagement or entitlement reform, or there are a lot of issues that may rate as sort of establishment behavior, but actually also rated as more conservative. And Trump took the anti-establishment position on many of those issues, immigration being another one, for instance. But also like, a lot of that coded as, frankly, more moderate within the party and also within the general election. You know, right now, Chuck, Trump's personal behavior is so omnipresent and so out there, if you will, that, you know, his numbers are, are pretty bad. Like these are not, you know, favorable numbers to be going into a general election and, and also facing the prospect of additional uh, indictments, whether it's in Georgia or with the special counsel. But I also think he's smartly, his campaign certainly has smartly positioned himself on some key issues once again to the quote unquote middle of where Ron DeSantis is right now. And DeSantis is literally racing to be 
holding down the most right-wing version of every issue from abortion, the six-week ban in Florida, to entitlements, uh, to Disney, you know, and punishing a private company the way he has tried to. Uh, Trump is actually on all those issues, including, by the way, the, um, the compromise over the debt ceiling that was reached over the weekend. Trump basically hasn't said anything about it. DeSantis put out a statement right away, uh, early, early Monday morning or early Tuesday morning, rather, rejecting the compromise. That stuff plays with the base, and maybe that's enough to, for DeSantis to get some traction in a primary. But Trump does have sort of a good sense uh, on, on the policy and on the ideology where the average uh, silent majority voter is in this country. And I think that's served him quite well in his career in American politics. So just, you know, to situate this podcast in time, because it'll be coming out, this debt ceiling agreement that has been struck and as we speak, it hasn't actually gone through Congress yet, although many people expect it will. I mean, if you look at it in the big picture, it strikes me in the context of our dysfunctional situation, a great triumph for governance. And the surprise in it all is the you know relative adroitness of Kevin McCarthy, first in holding together his caucus in the House and, and then negotiating something with the president. And, you know, speaking of the cup being half full, and to use another cliche, we're setting the bar very low for this half full cup. Is that, is that an encouraging sign in the sense that for all the craziness that was surrounding this issue, and of course, yes, as I speak, it hasn't passed yet, but even the fact that an agreement could be struck is encouraging. Yeah, I think it's a very encouraging sign because we all, and I, I count myself among them. I, I, I know I've interviewed the the speaker, and I, he's very sharp when it comes to politics and understanding politics and what it takes to build coalitions. But I also was sort of skeptical that he had the governing aptitude to really keep this together, given how far right some of these uh, Freedom Caucus members are. And look, I, I think in this case, his his knowledge of the politics and what it takes to to win and, and to kind of do what you can, given, given divided government, is showing that it's paid off uh, in spades. And it's not, Chuck, it's not just the debt ceiling, but it's his ability to put Democrats on the defensive over crime and winning a, a vote that actually made it to the president's desk, which President Biden ultimately signed over the D.C., uh, one of these these progressive D.C. crime bill measures, border security. Uh, they've been putting uh, these swing district Democrats on the defensive. You know, McCarthy has kind of gotten his finger on the pulse of where the politics are and forged this um, sort of center-right policy. And he's done it again, really, on, on the, the debt ceiling compromise. It's certainly not what they passed in the House. It's certainly not what a lot of Republicans necessarily wanted, but it's a heck of a lot more than what would have happened if they didn't actually negotiate and you know have a conversation about what could be done uh, in order for Republicans to raise the debt ceiling. So Carthy is, to me, and I agree with you entirely, Chuck, he's been one of the big winners in Washington in the first five months of this year. Well, this discussion also takes us back to this weird dichotomy between crazy behavior and moderate policy, right? I mean, I hate that word moderate because it's overused, but whatever else you can say about this debt agreement and the other things you're talking about, the uh, agreement basically across bipartisan lines about that DC crime bill, this clear gravitation towards something a little tougher on the border that's going on. A couple of other issues, you know, the, the remarkable still bipartisan consensus that's holding on for support of Ukraine. You know, if you can tune out all the crazy rhetoric, it's it's this strange contrast between the crazy rhetoric 
and what's going on in Washington, which is somewhat more stable. So that is one of the biggest developments in politics over the last six years, Chuck, that I think it's more important than ever as a political reporter to almost differentiate the rhetoric of a candidate from the actions and the substance in their in their history and in their record. Um, because I, I increasingly find that the rhetoric is a whole lot less predictive in, in terms of future behavior as your overall record of substance and what, what you know, what you did before you got into politics, uh, your ability to compromise. And frankly, like in the case of McCarthy, this guy was always a deal maker, was always someone who knew, you know, where the middle of the party was, how to how to compromise. And look, I, I was critical of McCarthy at, at times when he capitulated and surrendered to Marjorie Taylor Greene and other elements of that uh, right wing of the party. But in a way, he's, you know, being able to kind of appeal to those folks and keep them in the fold also allows him to, frankly, in a way, marginalize their views when it comes to actually putting out policy and actually get, you know, put, putting out results. And I think that's what you're seeing here with this debt ceiling compromise. And it's uh, an encouraging sign. It's another example of sort of the primary rhetoric, if you will, the speaker vote that was so contentious versus the act of governing and, and showing that those are separate skills in, in our legislative process. Well, I don't know whether it's a feature or a defect of our system, but it is a fact of our system that it's built around uh, sort of varying or interlocking or conflicting majorities. So the president has one majority to legitimate his hold on office, and the House of Representatives has another majority to legitimate its hold on office. And when they're from different parties, you got divided government. I wonder, now I'm going to ask you to be a little crystal ball gazer uh, for a moment. As you look ahead to 2024, the likelihood is for more divided government out of that? Or do you think that what happened in 2022 is a leading indicator of the Republicans' vulnerability to lose the Congress? Well, I mean, they might get the White House, who knows? But tell me whether you think the prospect is for divided government again. Well, I was going to say both could be true. Uh, you know, I, I do think that there's some warning signs that 2022 showed for the Republican Party. And I had spotlighted the problematic nature of a whole lot of these Senate candidates, but I was surprised by how that brand of the party really permeated into trimming down the sails of the Republican Party writ large in the House and in governor's races and certainly in the Senate. Look, I think that that dynamic could repeat itself in 2024, though I will note that the party leaders, especially on the Senate side, are doing more than their previous chairman, NRSC chairman, in kind of shaping the candidates and getting good candidates to run for some of these important races. But look, I, I think big picture, Chuck, bottom line is that we are going to have divided government, no matter who wins the, the presidency, I, I think. Um, the Senate is very likely going to be uh, flipping. Democrats certainly have a fighting chance, but there are a lot of seats that Democrats are defending in Trump territory. The trend in Senate politics has been Everything has gone national, so it's hard to get too many swing voters voting for the president of one party and the senator of another. And all, all Republicans need is to flip two seats. And that shouldn't be that hard when you're trying to go after seats in West Virginia and Montana and Ohio, just for starters. Yeah, I think the Senate is more likely than not to go Republican, which is automatically a check, no matter who wins the White House. I think the House could well go Democrat, though I think that's much more of a, of a toss up. Uh, Republicans have a very narrow majority. And if Republicans nominate someone who's not appealing to suburban swing voters, then certainly the House could flip. And certainly Biden could win a, a, an easily win a second term. But I also think Democrats need to be wary 
about Biden's age being a huge vulnerability in 2024, the fact that he'd be 86 years old at the end of that second term. And I think they they need to be wary about uh, the, the ideological direction of their own party. And uh, I think Biden has done a good job sort of muting the the power of the progressives who had quite a bit of sway in the first two years of his presidency. But that's a warning sign. And, and then the economy, likewise, like the, the fact that inflation is still a problem, that there is worry about where the economy is going to be in 2024, that could be a wild card in the next presidential election. So I'm going to finish. You've been great, Josh, as always great talking to you. I'm going to finish a little bit where we started, which is the question, is it good for the Jews? And I'm going to answer it in this way. One thing history teaches us is that polarization in a democratic society is not good for the Jews. They tend to get vilified and caught up and scapegoated in the competing narratives of political extremists. And I'd like to get you to reflect on that just for a second in terms of what you see going on in the U.S., how worried that makes you uh, or how confident you are that ultimately this society has the kind of, you know, DNA that is going to resist the worst tendencies. Well, you're right that these times of severe polarization are also times that tend to be tougher for, for Jewish communities across history, across the globe. And that, that, that's what worries me. That's what keeps me up at night. I also worry that the omnipresence of social media over the last decade really uh, fuels some of these extreme kind of strange views, builds communities among like-minded people, even if they're not that many of them, and can emp empower some, some, some crazy folks to, to do heinous uh, things. And that certainly worries me uh, as, you know, an American Jew and someone who sees the, the, the rising threat of anti-Semitic behavior. But I also think that America, largely for many of the reasons I, I, I talked about earlier, the fact that there is sort of a fundamental moderation to our society, which was not the case in many other modern societies that had to deal with the scourge of anti-Semitism. I actually think that's an encouraging sign writ large in, in the future, the broader future. I think the fact that you have a, a Biden administration coming full circle and really spending political capital to tackle these challenges is a, is, a, is a sign that you wouldn't have seen, you know, two or three generations ago in, in the United States, uh, certainly not elsewhere in the world. The thing that, that concerns me, frankly, is the behavior. I, I really just could go back to social media and it does feel like even some of these really uh, sharp people, their, their minds get hacked online. <laughs> and you, you start with Elon Musk, who um, was once seen, was sort of a, a bipartisan figure who, who honestly, Tesla was the fastest growing car in this country. And now he's turning into, you know, Henry Ford of the, of the 21st century with some of his public comments online and, and strange behavior in recent, recent months. And, you know, the power of technology, the changing mores technologically and societally, that, that, that's what, what kind of worries me. That's where you see some parallels uh, within history a century ago. And I don't think we're kind of on that track, but I do know that there's a lot of turbulence and chaos when you do see a lot of changes in a society and a lot of polarization that we do see to this day. Josh Krauss, our editor-in-chief of Jewish Insider and columnist for Axios. Thanks a lot for joining us on times like these. Uh, let's do it again soon. Thanks, Chuck. <laughs>